0: Hello and welcome to With Bowl and Spoon, a podcast about people's personal food evolution. I am here with my friend, Joe. Go ahead and introduce yourself.
1: I'm Joe Deming. I'm the Executive Director of the Pittsburgh Food Policy Council. I'm also a North Sider. I've been here about 20 years, but I grew up in Minneapolis.
0: You're the Director of the Food Policy Council, and can you say a little bit more about that? That role that you play, and what, what does that mean?
1: So that means that i get to work with a coalition of folks involved in the food system so and we get to solve problems identify strategic kind of policy solutions but it might be a program solution or just might be like a collaboration like we didn't these people don't know each other how do we connect them and you know better improve food security as well as um the environment and the life of people and all the things that are tied to the food system
0: and you've been in this role less than a year so you're still getting your footing yes. so I won't I won't grill you about <laughs> <Thank> that anymore
1: <laughs> I am new yes so I appreciate that I think I did an interview like a weekend into the job on the confluence so I'm used to uh <laughs> pressing myself but oh, I appreciate wow. it yeah so you're the director of the Food
0: Policy Council. Obviously, you have an interest in food, but that's not the only reason that I wanted to talk with you. Yeah. <laughs> but you have a history in food in other ways. So where did you grow up?
1: So I grew up in the city of Minneapolis, um, in the south side of Minneapolis, and I have three sisters. My mom is a nurse. My dad was a pianist. Um, my dad's side come from Mennonite history, so a lot of pastors and farmers, and my mom's side um, were also farmers. Her grandparents were farmers, but her parents, one was a college professor of math, so her parents kind of entered the professional class as it was. But my dad's side, they still had a massive garden, they raised pigs, they made sausage, um, they canned all their vegetables. So I would grow up visiting them and experience homemade chicken noodle soup straight with the gizzard in it, you know, and so was that like the prize
0: everybody was yeah.
1: fighting over the gizzard? Yeah. Just be like, mm, I hope I don't get that piece. That's why I became a vegetarian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um so yeah, my mom had a had a fresh vegetable garden. Um she was kind of Susie homemaker for my older sisters, but went back to work um when my youngest sister was born and so I mainly remember my dad in the kitchen. Wow, We'd grocery shop with him, he would cook, um, something he had to step into, knew nothing when he left for college, not even how to make pasta. So that was unique. My dad made a menu and would take us along to grocery shop with him. It included soup, tacos, pasta, stir fry, and pot pies or casserole. And on Sundays, we had roast in the slow cooker. And this is largely what I eat today. Vegetarian versions, of course, minus the casserole. But being the Midwest, we had different types of casserole. There was chicken and broccoli casserole, tater tot casserole, which had meat and cheese, and tuna casserole, which had these little fried onions on top. And of course, at Thanksgiving, we had green bean casserole a lot of frozen veggies we had special salads on sundays or special occasions those are the ones with the marshmallows and jello and other special things we ate a lot of sugar growing up we used to have four pieces of sugar toast that our dad would make for us every morning and we ate hostess snacks with our lunch and my dad would get all of these cookies from a local factory when they were like a day old so we'd have these delicious cookies and then we'd often have lucky charms before we went to bed. We had a lot of carbs. We'd often have toast with almost every meal. Um, But yeah, this explains my sweet tooth. The reason I always liked also to bake cookies and share bake things. So I stepped up, I became the household cookie maker. I was like, Seven or eight, and that was my title. At one point, we almost started. At, well, we did start a sisters' cookie company. I think we had maybe two sales, <laughs> but we made um these incredible. What are they called? Called like million-dollar cookies or something. And you had to shred the chocolate and chop the nuts, Whoa. and they were very intensive. Neiman Marcus, Neiman Marcus cookies. I don't know if you've heard of those, but um, yeah, so we had a brief cookie company, um, sort of one of my dreams someday, maybe, have a bakery. I just love baking. We made our own peanut butter cup recipe, melting chocolate chips, adding peanut butter, more chocolate chips, and putting it in the freezer. That was one of our special inventions that my sister and I used to make. One time I made apple pie that I used the recipe for inside the apple pie because I didn't know there was a separate recipe for crust. So I made a crust full of sugar, cinnamon, and butter. Put the apples in, added more cinnamon, sugar, and butter. It did not turn out well. I used to also take the insides of Oreos out and put them on the windowsill so that they'd get all warm and puffy. And I said that I was making homemade marshmallows. I would also make cookie dough without eggs, any number of ingredients, flour, sugar, butter, etc, and eat all the batter. Not everyone loves that I love to bake, especially when people are on diets or you know trying not to eat lots of things. <laughs> so I don't do it as much as I did when I was younger. but um, that's where I got started. And we used to play, we used to play restaurant, we used to um, outdoors make tacos out of leaves. I and mean, we had a very kind of free childhood where we roamed the neighborhood and roamed the kitchen and had very few boundaries as it was. <laughs> so we... That's a great childhood, a yeah. <laughs> the only thing I
0: know about, I think it was Minnesota, was the hot dish?
1: Yeah, we had a That's lot something. of hot dish, okay. a lot yeah. of casseroles, A lot of things called salad, but it was really jello marshmallows right and ca- and vegetables <laughs> or or apples nuts and marshmallows basically it had to have marshmallows in it and or it, was Jell-o. <laughs> it was a salad <laughs> yeah oh my and gosh, a, the casserole true. had to have like crushed chips on top like there's always like some potato chips crushed on the top or <laughs> just like a layer of oh we had to have mayonnaise a lot of mayonnaise in it <laughs> so if you, if you had a casserole wasn't a lot of cheese yeah and then you might put some vegetables meat yeah but those are the main ingredients i, I love
0: how expressive you are with this it's, <laughs> if you guys could see her face it's amazing <laughs> this is some yes. really good uh, good food memories you're yeah. putting forth here this
1: is awesome being the midwest we had different types of casserole there was chicken and broccoli casserole tater tot casserole which had meat and cheese and tuna casserole which had these little fried onions on top and of course at thanksgiving we had green bean casserole
0: where did you you had three siblings mm-hmm. and where did
1: you fall in the I was the younger middle third third yes okay so,
0: sorry <laughs> uh so I'm doing, yeah. I'm doing sibling math right now and I got it right
1: yes. it's tricky I was kind of the invisible peacekeeper that kept you know everyone I thought it was so powerful kept everybody you know in line and getting along mm. uh-huh <laughs> <laughs> That's a big responsibility. Yes, yes. And, and then
0: you learn to you start making cookies. Yeah, because that is how you care for your sibling.
1: I started caring, I guess, yeah, for yeah. my family, <laughs> bringing joy and happiness wherever I could go. Yes, cookies are a, a good vehicle for that.
0: <laughs> it's disappointing to hear that you're you have uh, stopped making those because. People don't eat them because they say they're on diets or whatever. Is that what you <laughs> Yeah, you we said? had a lot of yeah. housemates,
1: and they'd be like, "Please, can you please not bake us something?" I'm like, "Yeah," okay. <laughs> but I think you know, everybody
0: needs the joy. I think you need to bring that yeah. back. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: My, we kind of raised my older kid to be more healthy, I guess. And the other day, I was in a was on a baking spree. I made banana bread. I made cookies. I made this new creation because I forgot the cookie batter was still in the thing, which was apple crisp cookie dough, like a cook, chocolate chip cookie apple crisp. Wow. It was delicious. And then my 15-year-old complained The only thing missing from that. that is pumpkin. <laughs> right. Somehow. But there's, there's yeah. the
0: apple in there. But
1: Yeah. My 15-year-old was like, why are you making so many desserts lately? It's not even Christmas or Thanksgiving. <laughs> and I was like, is, are you complaining? How... Like, is, you said 15
0: 15 no so you can't do anything right I'm gonna take 10. away his 15 year old card Seriously. Like, just take it away from him no that is not something a 15 year old says no mom there's too many desserts yeah who so are you it's <laughs>
1: happening. middle age
0: straight to middle 14 to middle
1: age <laughs> I know I know I know so yeah and then my younger um my 12 year old's like can i have more cookies can i have more candy i need candy if i mentioned i want candies It's the other
0: (laughs) extreme enjoy that for another two years yeah you know three three
1: years yeah two years left of high school i went to remember i went to my friend's house when i was maybe 10 years old and the mom was trying to help us bake and i was like what is she doing here like can't wait she just leave us alone so we can have free range no, it didn't work that way. So I also got my first job was, aside from the cookie company, working at the Dairy Queen. Aww. So I learned how to make cones and blizzards, and yeah, it was a very special place to work. I remember getting my first paycheck, I bought a wallet with it, and I used to get half-off treats and give one you know, to my <laughs> friends, I became very popular with this. <laughs> so yeah, I ended up doing a lot of food service jobs throughout high school mm. into college. I worked as a, at our um, school cafe, and I was a vegetarian cook assistant in college and became a vegetarian because I loved animals at, like, 14 and never stopped. So, I will tell you, I was a cookie and bread vegetarian in high school. I didn't start liking vegetables until college. <laughs> so when you were a vegetarian? Yeah.
0: You didn't eat vegetables. Mm, almost like cheese bread. Oh, there's Sweets. that. Wait, cheese. Oh, I guess cheese is vegetarian. Yes. Okay, so you just ste- steered away from meat. Uh huh. But you didn't eat vegetables. Not a lot. Just
1: carrots, maybe, or. But you ate salad still, right? Like the yeah, ones with regularly. the marshmallows. That oh yes, definitely. <laughs> 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 definitely the Midwest salads. Um, Yeah, and then I remember the only beans I liked were Bush's baked beans, which are, like, super sugary. And so I put those in tacos in college as, like, my bean. That was my first, like, entree. And, yeah, so then I started liking black beans. I thought tofu was disgusting. After three tries, I started liking tofu. Someone added sugar and soy sauce. Yeah, and I thought seitan was disgusting, and now I love seitan. Like, it's just, you know, you can never... That's the vegetarian evolution, yeah,
0: <laughs> for sure. I mean, this is this is about people's personal food evolution. So you went from
1: regular hot, meat, potatoes. hot dish, and, and <laughs>
0: yes. salads, jello salads, yes. to you know,
1: vegetarian and. Now no, you... I'm largely vegan because I live with, yeah, my husband who's now largely vegan, gluten-free, and a vegan 15-year-old. and in Inspired father. by your 15-year-old, yes, you become yes, vegan. That's fantastic. Yes. I love that. Yeah, they made me watch a very traumatic documentary. And I was yeah, fully vegan for like five months until I missed pizza.
0: <laughs> cheese. 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 And, and I say bacon, but, you know, whatever. There's a lot of vegetarian options for that. Yeah,
1: bacon was hard to give up, and... Um, the target corn dogs those were my favorite oh that's funny <laughs> a special treat wait when did you ever eat the target corn dogs as a kid when we went to target once in a while as a treat
0: wow I, I i feel like target is such a, a new invention it <laughs> couldn't possibly really? have been around when you were a kid one well,
1: from minnesota which is the birthplace of target oh okay all right so it must have been there first yeah that's, oh. if it was the birthplace for sure the thing that i really want to bring to pittsburgh again it's not healthy fried mini donuts In in minnesota it's very big soda it sounded like <laughs> did say it,
0: totally perfect i was like i love that so much
1: soda um at the cup foods they had mini donuts fried mini donuts at the county fair they had mini donuts And there's just not enough fried mini donuts around here. I had one at a Butler County Fair, but I'd love to have like a vendor at the farmer's market and just sell fried mini donuts. It's such a special memory. I just saw that there was
0: an event this weekend that I missed where they were doing like cider donuts.
1: We had in Michigan, every apple orchard has cider donuts made with apple cider. And you had my homemade ones when you were here, didn't you?
0: I did. Yes. I did. They were like a day old, so they
1: might not have been totally fresh, but yeah, they're so fun. Well, you have
0: plenty of apples. Your whole family is vegetarian. Have your kids gone rebellious and eaten meat?
1: Not yet. One became rebellious and became a vegan. <laughs> the one that doesn't want sweets in the house. <laughs> but no. Okay, then. Maybe my younger one will do it eventually. I I did not see that coming. I know. <laughs> he takes all our values. Opposite rebellion. They take our values to the next level. Mm-hmm. hmm and then his kid will be paleo <laughs> probably It just won't eat anything yeah. <laughs> raw only raw food that'll be the next iteration. oh my god you're right there is
0: more yeah. there is definitely more you could go down that way anyway i mean all all good it's all good i'm not judging let's talk about when you move to pittsburgh because to me and a lot of folks you know food is not just sustenance but it's community and you moved to Pittsburgh and you wanted to create community
1: Mm -hmm. so can you
0: uh, talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure I majored in social work met my husband in the program he was one of four guys um, in a 40-person program so I really lucked out I think Uh, (laughs) and I kind of got in with his friend crew which were all these kind of change the world kids that wanted to do good things in the world and we, we looked at Philly and Pittsburgh and really just fell in love with Pittsburgh when we came. I worked on summer staff at the Pittsburgh Project with him one summer. Really liked working with the kids and um, living on the north side. And so once our friends agreed to move to Pittsburgh, it was just kind of going to be where we moved. And we, so what appealed to
0: you about Pittsburgh?
1: Um, I really liked how green it was, the hills, the rivers, the Three Rivers Arts Festival... Something I really enjoyed, the kids that I work with they were second graders, and they were just delightful and then all my coworkers at the Pittsburgh Project, it just seemed like this nice kind of interracial community that reminded me of my home, and it had this midwestern feel compared to Philadelphia, where we ended up going to grad school. Pittsburgh was like more um friendly the east east coast (laughs) and so yeah the neighborhood on the north side just sort of felt very similar to my own growing up felt like home
0: so how many of you moved to the north side
1: um i don't know it started kim was here first with two or three people we went to grad school came and another i think we had up to like 20 friends on the north side at one point wow yeah Yeah, it was kind of like Friends, a show. We started the coffee shop. You'd always see your friends in the coffee shop. It was a fun period of time.
0: You started, talk about you started a coffee shop. (laughs) Started
1: a coffee shop. So yeah, religion, social work, majors, starting a business. We had wanted to live, initially we wanted to live together in a co-housing situation, like a commune or something. But I had just gotten married and I'm like, I don't want to share my husband with all of you. I'm trying to get a little time alone. So I kind of nix the commune. So we were like, well, if we, you know, we had co-housing and then we had a business, we could, you know, fund our housing or fund things in the community that we wanted to in- like invest in. So, so that's how we came up with the coffee shop originally. And you
0: had a history of businesses with your other food businesses that you've had.
1: Yes, my cookie company, Thriving. Uh, but yeah, we had... Not a lot of history with businesses. We had, um, I did have grant writing experience from college. So one day we walked down Buena Vista Street and there's this building and it says, do you want to start a coffee shop? So it's the Northside Community Development Fund. So we went and asked them and they said, yeah, we could rent this to you for $500 and we can give you a loan, but you have to match it. So we're like, hey, $500 rent seems very cheap, and like we don't have any money, and we don't want a building. So why don't we just start renting the space? We needed about $30,000, we estimated, to start the business. We got 15,000 would come from the loan, and 15,000 we did a handwritten crowdfunding campaign, then we physically mailed letters, asked for money, and we raised the other 15,000.
0: And what year was that? Um,
1: 2005. And it took us about two months. We built out the counter and we got the refrigerators and the equipment and one of us took the health department class and um, other people we brought in to train us how to actually make lattes. I had also worked in a coffee shop in college. So yeah, we brought in our friend who ran a coffee shop in Brighton Heights to train us and we brought someone from a coffee shop in michigan to come down and train us from college we worked with a local lawyer we knew through a church to incorporate as an llc where we all had like equal ownership in the business then we had consensus meetings where we made decisions about the business and they might be three four hours long it was just so much talking
0: well consensus is
1: hard to (laughs) come to it's a lot yeah and you know I'm sure Kim told you they weren't. Comp- folks weren't compensated very much for working there. We did not have health care. A couple people was their full-time job. Gav and I were more back end. So I did the business plan, the small business development center at Juan Garrett's organization, Three Rivers Incubation. They helped us with our financial projections. So we got our business plan together. We got our loan. We purchased our equipment. We painted. Um, I remember the night we put this... Paper sign up that said Beleza Community Coffee House coming soon, and I was just like, No, we gotta do it. <laughs> you know, like we told everyone, so it was kind of nerve wracking. And a couple of months later, we opened
0: it's a good motivator, say it out loud in front of people.
1: Yes, and then we had like we would take um tabs so people could you know rack up 20 bucks and pay it up once they got to 20 bucks. We sold coffee for like a dollar and like lattes for like three dollars. We really didn't want we wanted to make it accessible we had flavor shots for kids you know and we had folks that were like squatting in buildings that would come in we had like kids from the neighborhood it was it's a nice community coffee house um yeah, yeah.
0: three years that's, that's i love that story of your coffee shop and also so how many you said you you were giving me the grand total there were of seven the owners
1: we were the original seven i guess we started the coffee shop and then over time, you've had you've gotten like another 13, 14 people yeah. to move to Pittsburgh from
0: that. I'm sure yeah. all of those baristas you brought in to train you were probably like being recruited to
1: move to Pittsburgh. <laughs> Pretty much you know, everyone like, was being recruited. Yeah, that's great. But we, um, some of the folks, you know, moved on, and I can. You might want to know what happened. Why didn't we last longer than three years? Did Kim cover this? Business is hard.
0: Yeah, um, I, I'm not <laughs> sure if she did. And for listeners, you may recognize some of this story, not in, exactly, because uh, Kimberly Bracken, who I interviewed on this podcast, has uh, did talk about this a bit. She was one of the partners, and she was one of the full time staff there. Yeah, uh, who lived above the store,
1: and she talked about that. But no,
0: I don't. I'm not sure if she mentioned uh, how how it sort of transitioned.
1: And I don't. I think. I may have told you this story before, but it had to do with upsetting our neighbors by getting involved in local politics, particularly around affordable housing and supporting homeless people. And we were caught petitioning outside of a meeting, uh, picketing, we were caught picketing outside of a meeting and someone posted on the neighborhood chat that the Beleza people are picketing and we ended up getting partially boycotted from some of our neighbors which was just enough to um reduce our profits so that we couldn't stay open.
0: That's sad. <laughs> it so was. you were recognizing the gentrification that was happening and trying to fight back about that. Exactly.
1: And wasn't popular down. yeah yeah I was also on the neighborhood board and we were working on this whole housing preservation plan and a community land trust plan which if we had put it in place would have preserved over 300 households and so it's just kind of heartbreaking that that effort got stymied by profit interests. it is heartbreaking yeah
0: To just have to be like "You could have fixed it mm-hmm. now I'm gonna go over here <laughs> yeah exactly And at the same time, it uh, closed your coffee shop, which is really sad.
1: And it was just kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, because people weren't getting paid a ton, and we're kind of ready to move on. And having consensus decisions for three years is kind of tiring. And we had a baby, and you know our lives were moving on too. And now one of those. People is a lawyer. One's a therapist. One's a um, teacher. So everyone kind of moved on to different things. And Gavin and I continued in the nonprofit sphere. And we lived in that community. We were part of the community garden down there. And Gavin took it upon himself to start clearing vacant lots first next to our house and then um, all around our house. And we talked about maybe we do want to live more in community. And we were told about a farmhouse up the hill, so we moved up here and now Gavin is caring for vacant lots all over the city, which is maybe another ba- a podcast <laughs> with the goats so well, so we got up. Here. I was thinking about goats <laughs> you know I
0: know it's gavin's business, but you house goats um, and you also have chickens, and mm-hmm. so you've got this really great mm-hmm. farmhouse here um mm-hmm. i I really wish everybody could be here with us um, with mm-hmm. this laden apple tree. <laughs> And all these pawpaw paw trees. How many pawpaw paw trees are in that? I think like seven. Cluster seven. Yeah, seven. It's beautiful. And you've got Most just this best. really great view, and trees, and birds, and, and chickens. Um, yeah. So it sounds like you the had.
1: raspberries. The oh, raspberries, wow. and the oh, maypops. Yeah, that's the raspberry bush.
0: And the maypops are on the fence? They're one. down
1: here, yeah, on the fence.
0: Ow. That's okay, that yeah. furry bush. Mine didn't get furry. Why not? Okay. Have to figure
1: that out. Might be two plants mixed mm-hmm. in. <laughs> Maybe.
0: But it seems like your childhood, this is just like natural progression to have a farmhouse mm-hmm. and essentially an urban farm as your home.
1: It's really a match between Gavin's childhood and mine because I definitely grew in this, up in the city with a not huge lot with a garden and he grew up on a farm. He had their own family garden and then there would be like private acreage behind them with corn and soybeans and stuff. So... Yeah, this is kind of like our compromise, (laughs) but um, we really lucked out with this property and we've had like one to five housemates, which helps us also provide affordable housing for our friends and neighbors and it's been a really great spot. I think Gavin had more of the vision for the urban homesteading and I've kind of gotten to come along for the ride and learn and grow and appreciate everything that's around us so that was a transition for you
0: it was a kind of maybe a struggle at points um not that I want to get into drama or anything but I'm curious about how that was
1: I didn't understand the vision at first like when he started clearing out the woods and moving brush and I was like just what's happening and we got to get all these ash trees cut down and then we got like 78 fruit different types of trees planted and now it's like beautiful back there and I'm like oh you saw this in your head the whole time like I didn't know you know so I think it's you know it's in his head and then I get to when it comes out I'm like oh this is it like this is what you're envisioning and it's beautiful and how can I help and yeah so, so you married a visionary <laughs> yeah. And you're living in his vision. This is and good. then I'm like, am I, is this really me, like in the kitchen, like trying to find an egg in my chicken? And I don't know why it's disturbed. And <laughs> You mean
0: like a deep dive into uh, the chicken to find
1: maybe. the egg that's not coming out? Is yeah. What yeah. <laughs> What's happening to my life right now? <laughs> so, how long have you guys had chickens? Um, we've had them uh, maybe five plus years. Yeah.
0: And the motivation for chickens was just... Local eggs, yeah.
1: Yeah, local eggs. Then we got the ducks, I don't know, just to torture ourselves. Um, No, just kidding. They're just for fun. But having ducks in the house when they're young is like a whole nother story. I love the little... (laughs) They pitter-patter around the floor. Oh my god, it's so cute. We like raise them in our bathtub just to kind of like keep it a little bit clean. But, yeah, they're very messy. What kind very, of ducks very do you messy. have? I don't know. And, honestly, they are no longer with us. We suffered some recent raccoon attacks. We have two chickens left. And oh, this, wow. We had six and two ducks, like, a month or two ago. Oh, that is really sad. Yeah.
0: I hate raccoons. Yeah. If it were, like, a hawk. Right? I'd be like, okay,
1: you earned that.
0: <laughs> yeah. A hawk yeah. got the chi- that I've seen situations like that, but,
1: yeah, yeah raccoons are
0: just mean. Yeah. And they don't even eat it.
1: Yeah. You know, at least
0: the hawk is doing it for food. for food.
1: <laughs> but I, I should say, too, we got involved with Ballfield Farm when the Pittsburgh oh, Project yeah. owned it. And we're, we're walking distance and we've stayed involved over the years. It's probably been 15 years or something. That's been a really good educational opportunity for me because... You don't have to know exactly how to do everything, but someone's always leading, and you're learning, and you're coming alongside. And so I've really appreciated all the stuff I've learned, and I've done a lot to build community there. At one point I just had text chains, and I would just, you know, be organizing people to come down and work. Yeah, I again. thought you
0: were one of the key players in the Pittsburgh project. The, in, sorry, in the Ballfield Farms,
1: I have been in the past. I'm okay. like not as involved on a daily basis. Gavin is like a consistent waterer. He waters
0: the high tunnel. Oh, that's that's the crazy thing, isn't it? You get the high tunnel, you're like, woo extended seasons," but then you're like, "Oh, I gotta water all year long." <laughs> it's the yeah, double hunch. Yeah, there. absolutely. <laughs> but talk about the founding of Ballfield Farms because that is a pretty remarkable uh, situation where I yeah. think they're going to own the land mm-hmm. that it is on. It's on an old city ball field. Yeah. Nobody was using it. No mm-hmm. teams were using it. So,
1: yeah, how did that come about? The Pittsburgh Project identified it as a place where some agriculture could happen. Mark and Courtney Williams were working there at the time. They had started an ecology program. There were boxes across the street. Um, But then they found this ball field and had a vision for how that could be turned into a farm. And it just has great, you know, high fences that we have seen groundhogs climb it. (laughs) But in theory, it can keep a lot of animals out climbing I'm, I know it, they're climbers
0: they climb ground
1: ground, ground hogs,
0: hogs. Yes. it's in
1: their name I what are I they know. doing climbing they've adapted to pittsburgh <laughs> i don't know so yeah so i don't know they identified this and they were engaging young people from the pittsburgh project learning about ecology um selling that food at a farm stand on charles street partnering with the food bank to provide some additional food it's really cool um but then they, I think it was maybe two or three years, they weren't able to sustain it, and they were just spending so much time you know, running a farm and didn't have the funding at the organization to sustain it. So they said, well, we've created this beautiful community asset, and we have engaged volunteers in this work. Why don't we turn it into a volunteer-run farm? So they stayed engaged as volunteers. They built some, like, a voluntary structure, and then people began becoming members and committing time to... To work the farm. And it's been like that ever since. Mark and Courtney Williams were leaders at that farm and Courtney did some classes on gardening that were really instrumental for, I know, Gavin to learn different things about composting. And Carol Gonzalez is now one of the lead volunteers. She's in Manchester, she coordinates it. And her and her husband, Henry, do a whole lot to keep it running. So it's a membership that you pay with your labor as opposed to paying dollars. It's financial and labor. Okay. Yeah. Right. So it's like fifteen dollars for an individual for like, you know, the whole year. Okay. So it's not yeah <laughs> expensive. From the history of some
0: of the folks that you mentioned, that they yeah. do work in communities and they work around food access mm-hmm. issues. Yeah. Was that something that you've always been involved with? I guess your social work background, but how did that yeah. how did you become aware
1: of More that? Of the food access for me, food access wise I think I've just always, I mean, I grew up in a low income community and, you know, I've lived in communities where food has been an issue. When I was young, my parents took me to volunteer at a soup kitchen with my church. And it gave me an awareness of people not being able to have enough food to eat or not having a home to live in. And it never left my mind or heart that those were things that people struggled with. My friend and I, about second grade, we were playing in the snow and we decided to create a homeless shelter and food pantry. And we built up all these shelves out of snow and walls, and I mean, this is Minnesota, so we had a lot of snow. Um, And then we brought all these boxes out and we created a food pantry with empty um, boxes from the recycling. Um but in our mind this was a real place that people were gonna come and they were gonna get what they needed. And we really thought the news media was gonna come and show up and cover this great new resource in the community. My own personal professional journey. I've always tried to integrate food into any outreach that I've done. I'm just like, you know, been not aware that people need to eat. Um but it wasn't really until we did some community planning and also COVID that it became, you know, a lot more visible and apparent.
0: And that was, what was your role during, during So I was that the time.
1: executive director of the um, Perry Hill Tap and Fine View Citizens Councils. So we were coordinating neighbors to bring meals to each other. We were coordinating volunteers to come to the new food drop locations. We were getting the word out about food drop locations. So we were working with the housing authority on a a food access plan as part of a choice neighborhood plan. Um, I'm just looking systemically at how can we improve food access? (laughs) But being in this neighborhood, it's just very inaccessible for people to get food and it's an everyday challenge. We have a food pantry on Charles Street that's two blocks from the Senior Center, which you'd think would be super accessible, but it's not. It's on a hill like this, and then, you know, it's very difficult for seniors to get there and back. Two buses to go, like, two blocks. Yeah, that's,
0: <laughs> that's one of the things that people don't consider when they're, like, mapping yeah. Pittsburgh is yeah. the hills. And yeah. that's, we actually did map the elevation in the Feed Pittsburgh report. Mm, yeah. That was a consideration.
1: Yeah. I had to have a wheelchair briefly, and I was just like, "Oh my gosh, what a nightmare!" I can't imagine just needing to wheelchair around my neighborhood. Yeah. And I saw a man at I mean, the bus. I was like, "How did you even get here without down your crashing? <laughs> Unless you have an electric one." Yeah. I was trapped in my house. Like that step, I couldn't even like get oh, in and out of my house. That is a big step. Though. <laughs> I know <laughs> like, it you is. Have to ramp it up. <laughs> no. So, yeah, it gave me a new appreciation for how challenging it is to get around for sure yeah yeah that's interesting because
0: a lot of people don't don't put that together as far as like I, i'm i'm not sure where i'm going with this but like you know people know that oh people are hungry but they don't really register that it's something that is multi-layered mm-hmm. like the reasons for them having, you know, no food is, is so many so many different layers. Right, right, right. Like it's you're you're talking about the lo, the location of grocery stores and the ability for them to get there, but then right. can they afford it? And then if right. they can afford it, can
1: they prepare <laughs> right. it? Do they know, you right. know, all of these right. uh different layers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think I've often worked on the bigger issues related to hunger, you know, the root issues, poverty, affordable housing if you can afford your home and you have more money to afford food to live in your home and i focused a lot on housing because of the trauma that eviction brings and how much that affects people's abilities to have their needs met they can get their benefits cut off they can get loser you know food benefits um it's just can be very traumatic and then it makes it so much harder to get housed and get stable and get food and So a lot of when I haven't been doing community development, I've been focused on housing advocacy. So I was at the Housing Alliance for five years, leading a coalition of housing advocates. Yeah. Reminds me a lot of this work. And I hope to connect and interweave a bit more with this work because I think the two are really connected.
0: It's great that you have recognized that food is part of all of those things. And that's that's the connection Mm -hmm. that... think is really um necessary in in the food work yeah yeah so so many people don't recognize that you know the food is one of those things that if you don't have it that's just the first rung of yeah trauma trauma (laughs) yeah no it is i mean it's air water food and food is the only thing that you know we don't take for granted we think oh we have to go buy it yeah And then anything after that, like, if you don't have food, like, you're not really caring about housing. You're not really caring about a car. You're not really (laughs) caring about if you have a bus pass or not. Like, Food is one of those things that you will be traumatized because Mm -hmm. your biologic needs aren't being met. You need energy to do anything. It gives you energy. It gives you life.
1: Yeah.
0: And just the the concept of not having food is just completely foreign to people.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. People say, like, are people really hungry? Yes.
1: And especially well, hot dogs are
0: just a dollar down at get go. Right. Just live on those all day long. Where do I get the dollar too? Yeah.
1: We were, um, we partnered with thrive 18 during COVID and we would get referrals from them to get food. And, you know, was a lot of times it was like folks that their money ran out for the month, you know, like the end of the month gets really tough and you're like, well, I need to make it through the weekend or I need to make it five more days. So those kind of things. And then I'm also a deacon at my church. And so we have people that are like, can I get a giant eagle gift card? Like I just need, you know, I'm going to get some money in a couple of days. And it's just a lot of kind of gaps out there. and
0: Yeah. And then the stigma of all that, of having yeah, to ask for help right. and how many people, if, if one person is asking for help, you know, 10 people need it that aren't going to ask.
1: Right. So yeah, it's tricky. Yeah. And then, what options do they have, and what kind of foods do they like? Like you said, can they prepare it? So, what is what is the answer uh, to solving all these problems? That is our job. Yeah, <laughs> figure it out. Once we solve poverty, we'll solve it all, right?
0: I saw somebody on LinkedIn this morning posted. Somebody actually from the mayor's office was at a conference, and they were like, "These are some big, you know, yeah, takeaways." And one of them was like charity is not going to solve systemic problems and I'm like duh Yeah, <laughs> like, right. we all know that we've been saying that
1: well the same instruments that like so many instruments that create the need for charity there's so many like our corporate structure and what they pay people and the government assistance like they're all creating that need for charity and it's like if we were able to those systems yeah we wouldn't need charity yes we'll always need charity (laughs) we'll always need food assistance um for folks but hopefully we can change the system enough that it's not like you know a normal thing it's sad too because people feel so good about giving charity it's like but also if you paid people more we wouldn't need to do this but oh it makes me feel good well make me feel good to pay people well (laughs) (laughs) Do better. Yeah. Yeah, our system is really built on low wages, and that's a big problem. And we have to subsidize everything else as a result. Yep. The generosity during COVID was encouraging. You know, we learned that, like, when there is a will, when people feel that this is a problem that we all have or could face, everyone's willing to pitch in. Everyone's generous. The government can cut red tape in ways we never knew. And so, like, if that is possible, that gives me hope, you know, because it's really a lack of will and not a lack of ability.
0: Yeah. We got Snap online. Right. Snap was accepted online. And that was like, oh, we can't do that. We can't. No way. Well, no, no, you can. And my favorite uh, result of uh, something that came out of COVID was telehealth that you could have doctor's appointments online because they the reason you couldn't do it before Uh COVID was because the insurance companies wouldn't reimburse doctors for that appointment for that time right and they had no choice during COVID because that was the safest way to do it right and so now that's not going away and kids have laptops
1: and they can learn and not be disadvantaged because other kids have laptops and you know and there's we can feed everyone. We could have fed everyone, right? You didn't need an income requirement. You didn't need to fit in a box. It was just, okay, you need food. There's no paperwork. Things like that. And um, I love that restaurants were just, like, making meals and, and you know,
0: giving out little packed yes. meals. Like
1: Right. And it was so supporting cool. the economy because it was engaging all these entrepreneurs. And I was like, wow, we can coordinate like this? We can support our local businesses and feed people? Yeah. So as terrible as the time was, there's lessons learned and it gives you a vision of what's possible and it also makes you realize that nothing's impossible.
0: Yeah. The negative part about after pandemic is that how quickly people forget. Yeah. And they is, took away the benefits. This
1: is all gone. Took away. You're the fine benefits. now, right? It's kind of like your parents, you know, like they were like, here's a little extra support and then they just took it all away and they're like, no, go ahead, do well. And you're like, but I that." <laughs> Do you need
0: some
1: support still? And you're just leaving home.
0: Is there anything that I haven't asked you about, food-wise? You seem to have, like, these little pockets of of amazing food system knowledge and work that you've done.
1: I was thinking about another two-headed coin situation. One is the disinvestment in food apartheid communities like this. And it's just been devastating and systematic and racist mm. and the other head of that coin is the food justice fund looking to address some of that and be just focus on justice and hopefully start building track record of investment where other dollars follow but would I mean is people don't invest in these communities because they don't trust these communities and so can we start to trust these communities to solve their own problems? Can we start to trust, you know, once we see that communities are capable? It's kind of
0: this along the same lines as how incorrect the term food deserts mm. were. Right. You know, like these are not deserted desert, however you want to... They're not desserts either, but they're not. They're not. They're not lacking life and vibrancy and and community. And there are systems set up within the community that are serving those residents that mm-hmm. we just don't see right. because we're looking at it through our lens, like we, whoever we might be, the the government, You're the outside. nonprofits, the organizations mm-hmm. that want to come in and help and tell people how to do it. How is this fun <laughs> going to? express that trust or express that support of that community and of those systems.
1: Yeah, I think having a governing board with a significant number of community representatives will help. What we propose, that's the bulk makeup of the governing board that would make recommendations. So I think that's huge. I think pushing Opportunities to grassroots groups so they know about them and that work's already begun and we don't have an RFP, but it's like we start to make those connections now. People are more likely to be able to access the funds, making sure that it's hopefully not a complicated application process um, and then getting some wins where people are like, this is what we're able to do and hopefully amplifying those wins. And Yeah, and people, a lot of times funders are like, well, who else is funding you? Now people can say like, well, this is you have one she yeah. built trust with one fund like that's really all you need one funder it's like if I go to my friends and I'm like hey could I borrow $50 and they're like well is anyone else giving you? <laughs> but once one friend does I'm gonna be like well Susie's giving me some and <laughs> will you give me some Matt you know so it's just I think investment leads to more investment and trust leads to more trust and you have to kind of start small
0: and what sort of operations or projects are you hoping to fund to sort of set the groundwork, I guess. I I would think that would be a way to go about it is you set the groundwork and then Uh other organizations can Uh build on top or under them at some
1: point. Yeah, I think we have a list of like 250 grassroots, many black-led grassroots organizations. I don't know exactly what will be the first. Um, I imagine people working on food access, but I also imagine people that are working with youth Um, to do gardening, or um, maybe some of the composting initiatives, nutrition education. I mean, it could really, there is a wide breadth of opportunities, um, so I wouldn't want to put it into a box, but I think it's it's to be seen.
0: It kind of goes back to what we were talking about, though, that the charity isn't going to necessarily solve any of these systemic problems so if you're focusing on food access organizations
1: mm-hmm. or
0: food ac- people providing food access that's mm-hmm. kind of not solving the systemic problem so how is that going to translate
1: yeah I think too that's one reason we need to um build the fund and have opportunities for businesses because part of it's the economic growth and opportunity so having loans and grants for businesses that's one of the kind of longer term strategies We were looking at um, a recent opportunity from the reinvestment fund around the healthy food financing um to kind of grow that pot in that in that way um also yeah there can be jobs and i think education like all those things will hopefully help and just money coming to neighbors doing work because a lot of people have just been working so long and making no money and just out of their hearts so if they're able to make some money that is actually going to help their living situation so is the food justice
0: fund going to help to fund staff because that's something that a lot of the other funding (laughs) options we just talked about that last week like the other funding options Mm -hmm. do not pay for the labor they'll
1: yeah they'll
0: give you irrigation systems and fences (laughs) till the cows come home right but they won't pay for anyone to grow anything in that hoop house
1: right right yes i would definitely see that happening that's great yeah that'll be yeah groundbreaking yeah and that'll sure. complement some of those
0: other grants that are narrow you've got three million dollar that will be yeah flooding into these communities and hopefully helping them out and yeah, uh, in the next year making systemic change
1: yeah yeah and we're also hiring a grant writer two grant writers I'm um, coming on any day now and so they'll be able to help some folks with, with their applications too which would be really helpful yeah that's great yeah
0: Is there anything else that we haven't talked about?
1: Oh, I will tell you kind of a fun story. Um, During the pandemic, my oldest we've talked about um, started making their own ginger ale. Mm. And so we kind of created a little mini business where we had members and we delivered 10 to 12 drinks a week. And we'd use reusable glass jars, and so it was called Megan and Freddy Co. It was a little business that my kids ended up running for, like, a year and a half every week delivering drinks. They made about $35 to $40 each a month, and, like, it was great. It was how they made money, and they got into the food business. And I started dreaming, like, well, how do we get this bottled? How do we get this, you know, what's the next <laughs> level? And I was like, no, it's too much. we got to just shut it down. So was it ginger ale? <laughs> was, it, was it naturally carbonated, so they'd put the
0: the fresh ginger close it and then let it ferment add sugar add
1: sugar throughout the week and then they ended up mixing it in with like a fruity tea as like a mix in so it was a they called it wild soda or different flavors we'd have peach berry and every week would be like different one and blueberry raspberry and ginger and yeah
0: so kind of like kombucha but more sugar
1: yeah, More but sweet. ginger based. Ginger I think based. yeah, kombucha is what? Yeast or I you don't know what the well, it's, mother it's is. Tea from. based. Yeah, it's a uh, scoby the the scoby, yeah. So this is like from the ginger itself. And what's on that? Is The ginger that, just cements? It's <laughs> the sugar. I don't know. Ask for fifteen. Or ask the
0: kids. <laughs> 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 That's great, yeah. I love I love yeah. fermenting stuff. Alright, well, this has been really nice. Thank you so much
1: for yeah, talking with you.
0: me. <laughs> with Bowl and Spoon is written, produced, and hosted by me, Shelly Danko Day. Copy editing by Carolyn Ristow. Details review. Original theme song was written and performed by Paul LeBris and Friends. You can listen to With Bowl and Spoon anywhere you get your podcast. Follow us and send us questions or messages on Facebook and Instagram, or on our website, withbowlandspoon.com. Thanks for listening!
1: One dinner memory of my dad making stir-fry and my sister, my little sister, didn't want to eat it. And she saying, I don't want to have this. And my dad saying, just eat your dinner. And my sister's picking at her food with her fork and says, but they have eyes. And my dad said, no, they don't. Just keep eating it. And he start looking at it and he noticed there were these tiny black dots on the rice-like pieces and he went into the cupboard and pulled out the bag and the maggots were just squirming everywhere and we all just wanted to throw up. That's to say, we did not eat any more of our stir fry that evening. Food.